At the heart of the Bible is a story, a true story, that helps us to explain why we are here, what went wrong, because you don't have to be a Christian to have a sense that the way that things are now is not the way it's supposed to be. How is it being fixed? How is it going to be fixed? And then where is this all going? Another way to think about the narrative that is at the heart of the Bible is to think of it as a four-act play. Creation, fall, redemption, fulfillment, or restoration. Now, when people begin to see that this Bible is not just a list of rules for us to follow, but is instead a story, a story that we get to be a part of, you can just see the light bulbs go on for them. Because this understanding, it has all sorts of implications and it raises all sorts of questions, which is really, really good because when people start asking these questions and drawing out these applications, you can tell that they are really, they've really begun to get it. One of the questions that pretty much inevitably comes up is, when? When is this fulfillment going to happen? Is God going to finally and forever fix all that's broken in our world? The Bible tells us that it's going to happen when Jesus comes back again. Not as an infant in the quiet humility born to poor Jewish parents, but as a conquering king with the trumpet call of God, coming to bring judgment and justice to all nations and all people. It's what is oftentimes called the second coming of Jesus Christ. But when? When is this going to happen? Well, some people think that they've got it figured out. And a lot of these people, apparently, who think that they've figured it out also like to write books about it. Now, I've not read any of these books, um, but you can tell from the titles that they, it, it seems that it must be pretty easy for us to figure it out, or at least they think so. In fact, some people go beyond just claiming to have figured it out. They actually think that they've nailed it down. I'm going to guess that book on the left doesn't sell much at this point. And that one on the right, uh, the author there, he's certain that Jesus is going to return in our lifetime. That's possible, but I'm not sure I share his certainty about this. But then there are also others who actually think it's already happened. And we missed it. Some who claim that Jesus has already come back. Only it seems that no one noticed. So what are we supposed to make of this? There's so many different ideas and positions and opinions out there on this topic, on this issue of when all of this is going to happen. Who are we supposed to listen to? Which of these books 
if any of them has gotten it right. How are we supposed to know? Fortunately for us, this is something which the Bible, which Jesus himself actually speaks to. Now, it may turn out that they don't tell us everything that we'd like to know. But what the Bible and what Jesus do tell us is as much as we need to know in order to live well and faithfully until he comes back again. We're going to talk about that this morning. We're in the midst of a sermon series from the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. This book is really a letter that was written by the great church leader, church planter, Paul, to the believers in a church that he started in the city of Thessalonica. This Greco-Roman city, it was big, it was prosperous, it was very religious, very spiritual, and not at all very Christian. So Paul wrote this letter to them to help them know how to live well and faithfully in their city as they waited for Jesus to come again. This morning we are going to we're going to see Paul remind these Thessalonian Christians of what they already know about the second coming of Christ. We're going to learn why it is these Christians were so concerned about his second coming. And we're going to consider how they and we should be living in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to take out your Bibles and join with me uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Um, and if you're using one of our red Bibles, we're going to be starting on page 1838. 1838. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As we begin here, we're going to see Paul... Remind the Thessalonians of what they already know about the second coming of Jesus. So starting in verse 1 there in in, uh, chapter 5. He writes to them, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. So Paul here affirms that, in fact, he doesn't need to write to them about dates and times of the day of the Lord, because this is something that they already know about. And what they already know from what he undoubtedly had taught them during the time when he was with them when he had first started this church, is that these times and dates, they are unknown and unknowable. And that is because the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Let's look at this a little bit more closely. The day of the Lord is another way to talk about the second coming of Jesus. It's a phrase that comes out of the Old Testament, specifically from Old Testament prophets. And the prophets used it to describe a future time when God would come to punish the wicked and to vindicate his people. And so it's a day of judgment for the enemies of God and a day of rescue for the people of God. 
Well, once Jesus is revealed to be the long-promised Messiah through his death, through his life and death and resurrection, and then before Jesus ascends to heaven, he promises that he's going to come back again. And this time, it will be to finally and forever fix the world, which will be the ultimate day of judgment for the enemies of God and the ultimate day of rescue and vindication for the people of God. In other words, the second coming of Jesus is the day of the Lord that was predicted and promised going all the way back into the Old Testament. But again, the question, when? When is this going to happen? When is this day of the Lord? When will Jesus come again? Well, I just showed you the titles of a bunch of books that seem to claim to have the answers. But there's a problem with this kind of claim. It contradicts with the Bible, even what, with what Jesus actually tells us. At the end of verse 2 there, Paul, uh, the Bible, says that the day of the Lord, the second coming, is going to come like a thief in the night. In other words, it's going to come at an unknown time. And so according to Paul, according to the Bible, the timing of the second coming of Jesus, it's unknown and it is unknowable. And it frankly, it doesn't matter if you can come up with 88, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come in 1988 or 25 reasons why he's going to come in 2025. You're still likely to be wrong. Why? Because the timing of the second coming of Jesus is unknown and it's unknowable. Now, maybe you're wondering why Paul should be so sure of this. I mean, frankly, who is he to presume to make such a claim, right? Maybe you're thinking that. It actually turns out that it's not Paul who's making this assertion. Paul is simply repeating what Jesus himself has said. Here's teaching from Jesus as recorded for us in Matthew's gospel. This is Jesus speaking. All the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man. That's a reference to Jesus, uh, referencing uh, Daniel 7. Anyway, uh, when you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of, he one end of the heavens to the other. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, and he would not have let his house be broken into. And so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. According to the Bible, according to Jesus, the timing of the second coming is unknown and it is unknowable. And to claim otherwise is to try to claim that you know something that even Jesus doesn't. So here's an important takeaway from this. If someone is claiming to know 
or claiming to have figured out something that even Jesus didn't and quite possibly still doesn't know. Don't believe them. I mean, in fact, you probably should be careful about trusting anything that they try to say to you. I mean, I think we all know that we don't have to look very far to find books, to find websites, to find YouTube channels, radio, TV shows, where people claim to have all of this figured out. And look, I understand the appeal of that kind of a message. We would like to have this figured out and nailed down, right? But people who are making these claims, they are either biblically ignorant or they're fraudsters who are much more concerned with simply getting a hold of our attention and our money. Jesus is clear. The timing of the second coming, it's unknown and it's unknowable. Well, having quoted Jesus' thief in the night metaphor, Paul now adds another metaphor in order to further his point. Uh, In verse 3 he says, while people are saying peace and safety or peace and security, depending on your translation, destruction will come on them suddenly as pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Um, Peace and security was basically a slogan of the Roman Empire. This empire was brutal. It ruled with an iron fist. But in exchange, it promised to the people stability, peace, and security. In fact, they even worshipped gods by these names, Pax and Securitas. And so it's very likely that as these Thessalonian believers told their neighbors and their loved ones about Jesus, about his message, about his mission, about his promise that one day he was going to come again to bring final judgment and justice, many of them scoffed at this idea. I mean, why should they be worried about a Jewish rabbi coming again? I mean, the empire had already dealt with him the first time by putting him to death. Why should they worry about his possible return? Because they had peace and security in their government and in their emperor. Well, Paul tells the Thessalonian believers that regardless of the level of confidence that their neighbors were putting in the peace and the security of the Roman Empire, the day of the Lord is coming. And with it, judgment and destruction that would overtake them like labor pains do a pregnant woman, inevitably and unavoidably. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad that you're here. It is great that you are here. And I hope that your experience thus far has communicated to you that this is a place where you are welcome, where you are always welcome. And that is definitely true. But the other thing that I want to make sure that you understand this morning is that this text is for you. Now, I am not at all into trying to scare people into following Jesus. I don't like that approach. I actually don't think that it works very well. And I have no interest in trying to scare people this morning. But what I do hope that you can see, that you can understand, is that this text 
has sobering implications that at the very least you need to consider seriously. See, Jesus is coming back one day. I have no idea when. Could be in our lifetime, but I'm not persuaded by those who seem to be so certain of that. I just don't know. But what I do know is that when Jesus comes back, there's only going to be two kinds of people. There are going to be those who've chosen to follow Jesus as their true rescuer king. And there are going to be those who've chosen not to. And for the first group, it is going to be the very best day of the world. And for the other, it's going to be their very worst. And I don't say that flippantly. And so the decision to choose or not to choose Jesus, it is a real, it is an important, it, it is even potentially an urgent choice that we all have to make. And here's what, here, here's what choosing Jesus looks like. It comes down to acknowledging that we are broken in ways that we cannot fix. Believing that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Son of God who became one of us. And then committing to following him as our true rescue, our King. Acknowledging our brokenness, believing Jesus, and then committing to following him as our true rescue, our King. If you do that with honesty and with integrity, basically if you mean it, then you have nothing to fear about the day of the Lord, about the second coming of Christ. And we're going to see why in just a minute. But first, here, here's the first thing. I just, just to remind you, here's the first thing that, that all of us need to take from this text. That according to Paul, according to the Bible, according to Jesus, the times and the dates of the second coming are unknown and they are unknowable to us. All right, but if the Thessalonians already knew about the unknown and unknowable nature of the second coming, then why is Paul now writing to them about it more? If this is something that the Thessalonians, if, this, if the Thessalonians already know this, which is what he indicates at the beginning of the text, where is Paul going with this? Well, what it seems is that the issue of greatest concern to these Christians was that the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus, they were most concerned about what that day was going to be like for them. See, it appears that they were very concerned that they might get caught up in all of this judgment and wrath of God that's going to play out on that day. And so as Paul writes to them about that day, Paul assures them that they have nothing to fear regarding the day of the Lord. If you remember from last week, last week we saw that, um, that the dead have no reason to be concerned about missing out on the second coming of Christ. Well, this week we're going to see that the living have no reason to fear what they will experience at the second coming of Christ. Let's look at the text. Verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. So do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. So here in these verses, Paul gives the Thessalonians, God is giving to us, two reasons why we do not need to fear the second coming of Jesus as believers. And then he also gives us instruction on how we're supposed to live well and faithfully in light of what we know about the second coming. But let's look at it. The first reason why the Thessalonian believers, why Christians like you and I today don't need to fear the second coming of Jesus is because of who we have become as followers of Jesus. Paul says here that we have become children of the light and children of the day. Look again at verses 4 and 5. But you, brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness anymore. Light, darkness, day, night. These are common metaphors, common word pictures, uh, both in the ancient world just as they still are today. And the way that Paul is using them here, he is probably using them in both their moral and in their cognitive sense. What I mean is he's using them, it seems that he's using them both to represent good and evil as well as knowledge versus ignorance. So because of these believers' decision to follow Jesus, they who were once evil are now good. And though they were once ignorant of who is really in charge and who is the true rescuer king, now they're in the know. They're in the light. The light bulb has gone on, so to speak. It also seems that when Paul is describing them here as children of the day, he might also be alluding directly to the day of the Lord. So what he's saying here is that because of their decision to follow Jesus, these Christians, they're now on the right side of things. They are now children of the light. They are now children of the day of the Lord. And so the reason why believers do not need to fear the day of the Lord is because of who we have become in Jesus. Children of the light and children of the day. But Paul, he also has a second reason why the Thessalonian believers, why we today as believers don't need to fear the second coming. And this is because God has changed our destiny. He's changed our destiny from one of wrath and destruction to one of salvation. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Remember, going all the way back into the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, which we now know of as the second coming of Jesus, 
was a future time when God would come to punish the wicked and vindicate his people. It was promised to be a day of judgment for the enemies of God and a day of rescue for the people of God. Well, Paul here, he's assuring these Thessalonians that for them, it's going to be a day of rescue because God has now appointed them, destined them for salvation, not for wrath. And at the end of verses 9 and 10, uh, at the end of verses 9 and then into verse 10, Paul highlights the means by which this change of destiny takes place. It all happens through the death of Jesus, a death that he dies for us. It's through the death of Jesus, his life for ours, that we are saved from the wrath that we deserve, and instead, we are now destined for the salvation that Jesus has earned for us. Now, if you've ever read the parts of the Bible that describe what the day of the Lord, what the second coming of Jesus is going to be like, it is very possible that you're worried. (laughs) Whether we're talking about what Jesus says in the Gospels, uh, what we see predicted in the prophets in the Old Testament, as well as what we see a couple of the New Testament, what we find in a couple of the New Testament letters, And then, of course, especially what we find in the book of Revelation. One of the things you might be wondering is how could believers possibly survive what seems like it's going to be, like like it seems what things are going to be like at the second coming of Jesus? Because it's just overwhelming. And this, it appears is exactly what the Thessalonian believers are also very concerned about. And I'd point out to you that none of them have read the book of Revelation. And yet they're still freaking out about this. Because the book of Revelation hadn't been written yet at this point. If you're a follower of Jesus, and this is one of those things that you're worried about, which is entirely possible, it is what these Thessalonian believers were afraid of, of how they could possibly survive, even, even as God's people, how they could possibly survive what, what they understand to be coming at the second coming at the day of the Lord. If that's something that you are also concerned about. I want to remind you of an important Old Testament story the story of God's rescue of his specially chosen people from their slavery in Egypt. Remember that in this story, God pours out judgment and wrath on the nation of Egypt because Pharaoh refuses to repent and to set the Israelites free. And although the wrath of God poured out all around the Israelites, effectively ruining the nation of Egypt... God's specially chosen people escaped unscathed because God had destined them not for wrath, but for salvation. So as Christians today, like the Christians in ancient Thessalonica, we do not need to fear the second coming of Jesus because we are children of the day. 
And God has destined us for salvation. Now that, it, it obviously has huge implications for our future. But more importantly, that future has implications for how we're supposed to live today. Paul explains what this means, what this, the implications of this mean for them and for us today in verses 6 to 8. Here's what he writes. He writes, So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Again, more metaphors. Since we are children of the day, we're not supposed to be like night people who are sleepy and drunk. Instead, we're to be like day people who are alert and sober. Or as one commentator brilliantly and so simply describes it, we're to be ready and steady. Ready for the second coming of Christ, no matter when it might be. Ready not because we know when, but ready because we know that we don't know when. And steady, steady in the sense of being well-balanced and self-controlled and not caught up with or consumed with speculations about times and dates that the Bible itself tells us are unknown and are unknowable. Steady in exercising self-restraint, emotionally, physically, spiritually, even when we're facing uncertainty, adversity, even danger. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, who are waiting for his return, we are called to be ready and steady. But I do want to make sure that you notice the nature of the relationship between being children of the day and living in ways that are ready and steady. Because if we don't understand how these two things relate to each other, we'll miss out on both of them. Here's what I mean. We don't become children of the day by acting in ways that are ready and steady. Ready and steady doesn't make us children of the day. That is not how this works. Instead, God makes us children of the day. And then he calls us to be ready and steady. And so becoming a child of the day leads us to being ready and steady. That's the only way it works. It does not work the other way around. And we become a child of the day. We become a child of the day through Jesus. Through pledging our love and our loyalty to him. And then, and only then, can we become ready and steady as we learn how to follow him faithfully. Ready for Jesus to come back and steady in the face of whatever might come between now and then. So what can we do 
to nurture this readiness and this steadiness? How can we grow into people who are, who are being ready and steady? Well, Paul tells us there in verse 8. He writes, But since we belong to the day, we're children of the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So how do we nurture readiness and steadiness in our lives as children of the day? We do it through faith, through love, and through hope. We nurture ready and steadiness through faith. We become and are ready and steady as we choose to trust in God's plan, as we trust in God's goodness, as we trust in God's purposes in all things. As we put that faith and trust in God in those things, it makes us more ready and steady. We do it through love. We become and are ready and steady as we commit to learning to love each other more and more. So much that God is pleased and our neighbors are impressed and amazed. We become ready and steady by learning to love each other more and more. We become ready and steady through hope. We become and are ready and steady when we put our confident expectation that in Christ, because of Christ, we're going to be rescued from wrath because now we're destined for salvation. So the way to nurture our readiness and our steadiness is through practicing faith, loving each other well, and putting our hope in Jesus above all others. That's how we be ready. That's how we be steady until the second coming of Christ. This table that's set in the middle of the sanctuary, it celebrates the event that makes it possible for us to become children of the day. I'm speaking, of course, of the death of Jesus on the cross. The bread on the table there it represents his body, which is broken for us. The cup represents his blood, which was spilled for us. And by participating in this table, we celebrate our fellowship with him. And by doing it together, we are practicing our fellowship with each other. The text that we looked at today concludes with these words. Verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in, just as, in fact, you are doing. Sharing this meal with Jesus and with each other is one of the ways that we can encourage and build each other up to be ready and steady. See, for all of us, our concern should not just be that we are personally ready and steady. But our concern also should be that we are helping others be ready and steady as well. And we can do this by nurturing each other's faith, nurturing each other's trust in the goodness of the plans of God and His purposes. We can help nurture each other's readiness and steadiness by learning to love each other more and more like God has called us to. And we can nurture each other's readiness and steadiness by encouraging each other to put our hope, to put our confident assurance 
not in any sort of peace and security that is promised to us by any earthly government or emperor or president, but to find our peace and security in the one true king, our true and coming king, Jesus Christ. Isaac and I, in just a moment, are going to distribute the elements. Um, everyone who loves Jesus is, is uh, invited to join us, is welcome to join us in sharing this meal with him and with us. Um, you don't need to be a covenant member or a regular attender of this church. You just have to be a follower of Jesus to participate. Um, we're gonna, uh, you're going to see that the elements are double-stacked, uh, two cups, uh, one with the cracker, one with the juice. Just take both. And then hold on to them because we'll take them together at the end. Um, and then if you, parents, if you've got young kids with you, you decide when your kids are old enough to understand and participate. Um, and then if anybody needs gluten-free, we have that. But one more thing. Um, as Isaac and I distribute the elements, take this time um, to reflect on what this message is all about. Are you ready for the second coming of Jesus? Even if you've already pledged your love and loyalty to him, are you ready for his return? Whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's a millennia from now. If not, talk to Jesus about what is keeping you from being ready for his return. Are you steady? As a child of the day, are you living in ways that are characterized by balance and self-control? Or is your life characterized more by anxiety and worry? Are you able to think clearly, to practice self-restraint, even in the face of uncertainty? even danger. If this is a struggle for you, then use this time to talk to Jesus about that. Ask Jesus to show you how to better live ready and steady in the joy and the peace that we find, we have found in the assurance that as followers of Jesus, we are not destined for wrath, but are now destined for salvation. This bread represents the body of Christ, broken so that we can be made children of the day. Take and eat. This cup represents the blood of Christ spilled for us. Spilled for us so that we are no longer destined for wrath but for salvation. Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died in order to make it happen. Take and drink. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your great unstoppable plan to rescue and to redeem a people for yourself. 
We know that you designed and created us to be your representatives and to rule this world with you, and yet we did not remain loyal to you. Thank you for loving us so much that you did not forget us nor even abandon us to your wrath, but instead sent your Son to be our true rescuer, King. And Jesus, thank you for loving us so much that you willingly left the glory of heaven in order to become one of us in the midst of our beautiful but broken world, in order to show us how to truly live and then to die for all the times and ways that we don't, to make it possible for us to become children of the day who are destined for salvation. And Jesus, thank you for promising that you are coming again. Holy Spirit, until the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes again, please continue your good work in us. Help us to see and believe that in Christ we are now children of the day and children of the light. Form us into a people who are ready and steady as we trust God, as we love each other, as we put our confident assurance in our salvation more and more and more. And show us how we can encourage one another and build each other up as you've called us to do. Continue to make us more and more like Jesus so that we become more and more your agents of faith and love and hope in this beautiful but broken world. A world that one day Jesus is going to come back to finally and forever fix and make new again. We pray this in his name. Amen.